I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show and our weekend review. On this episode, we're looking back on a weekend where Man City were blessed with the press that transgressed Tuchel's success. Arteta felt better as his go-getter gunners put the stunner on Spurs, while Kane looked drained as he tried in vain to persuade us all he can still be bothered to play at White Hart Lane. And Josie Mourinho was left in Roman ruins as Immobile saved the day and Sari side made some headway. Oh, some strange <laughs> rhymes today. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who has a brand new iPhone, and I'm very jealous of it. Graham Ruffin, hello. Hello, Ryan. That was that was very impressive. I think you've been inspired by our commentary 101 episode, maybe some Peter Drury there. I feel like you have uh, drawn upon, particularly with the Mourinho uh, reference there. Uh, bravo. Bravo, sir. I, yes, I've inadvertently quoted Peter Drury in the Roman ruins. You're quite right there, Graham. You're quite right. But that's, that is very much what Josie was left in with the defeat in the Rome derby, which we shall talk about later on today. Uh, I, I would like to talk about your iPhone, though, Graham. You've got one of the fancy new big ones, um, so so I should say. And uh, <laughs> is the battery still going? Because I think you said it's been going for about seven days now. Yeah, I think it might be nuclear. This thing. I mean, I don't, I don't <laughs> want, I, I don't know how much battery talk. I don't know how uh, how entertaining this is. But yes, I've charged it once since I got it on Friday morning, and looking at it now, it's it has sixty eight percent. So that is quite remarkable. <laughs> That's very, very impressive. Do you know what, Graham? I'm, I'm in Italy at the moment. It would actually be cheaper for me to fly back to the US to buy a new iPhone than to buy one locally. Isn't that fun? Yeah. I mean, if, if you don't care about like your carbon footprint, I'd, I'd say that's a fantastic strategy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very good point. I did get an electric car today, Graham, so I'm feeling a okay. bit better about my carbon yeah. footprint. Yeah, you're, so. offsetting it. you're offsetting it that way. And also, I think the boxes on the iPhones are smaller now for uh, so that... Well, they say it's to for the environment, but it's so they don't have to pay for a charger in that box. We all know that's the real reason. So yeah, I guess you could offset it by flying back to the States and doing all those things. That's right. I'm saving polar bears left, right and centre, Graham. Um, also here with us is a man who hasn't bought a $1,000 phone, but who is dialed in delivering more stats than a weekend of foot mob notifications on your phone, Joe Lowry. <laughs> Oh, Ryan, that was brilliant. And I echo Graham's sentiment. The introduction was fantastic as well. Listeners, right before we started record, recording, Ryan said, okay, I've got a really wordy introduction and I'm nervous for it. And Ryan, you pulled it off beautifully. Thanks for telling him how the sausage is made, Joe. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. Uh, uh, thank you very much. I do appreciate that, Joe. How are you doing on this fine day, Joseph? I am quite well. I'm just still shocked that Graham like like complimented you and started off on a positive note as well. I'm kind of reeling from that. This is going to be a good show, fellas. This is going to be a good show. I think um, Graham's in a good mood because he's been watching Grand Prix this weekend. Uh, Lewis, Hamil- Lewis Hamilton, easy for me to say, uh, in the Russian GP's 100th win, Graham. That, did that do it for you? 
Um, I mean, it was incredible drama. Lando Norris is my boy, so for him to lose out like he did, um, going for his first F1 victory, he he holds off Lewis Hamilton for much of the race. Lewis Hamilton is eating away at his, his advantage by a tenth of a second here and there, and just as it looks like Lando's going to do it, he's going to hold off the seven-times world champion, Rain, with two laps to go, and it's a lot of rain, and faced with a call of whether to, put, uh, to pit for the final two laps... Lando makes the call to brave it out. Hamilton pits and it pours for the final two laps. Lando just can't keep it on the track and he finishes seventh, having led for the majority of the race. So I very much enjoyed it as a spectacle, but it was a bit draining that, uh, that Lando didn't win it. I was a bit upset about that. And, and so was he, it seems, because it appeared he'd been crying after the race. So that's Aww. not so good. Oh, no, Poor crying Lando. in the rain. That's no good. Um, Lando is an unusual name for sports people, Graham. It's, it's like Landon without the N. That's what I've just observed. <laughs> yeah, good observation there. I like it. Lando. It's a cool name. Uh, well, that's uh, uh, Landon without the N. Uh, TSS is without the Taylor today. Uh, Taylor Rockwell is on vacation this week. The very same week that uh, Man United happened to lose uh, to Aston Villa at Suspicious. Old Trafford. Coincidence? I think not. I think not. Um, Bruno Fernandes to, uh, took and attempted to take a late penalty, Joe, and I think it just landed in my backyard a couple of minutes ago. The first time he's ever missed the target in 15 career penalties. So before we get going today, I want to know from both of you, what's your penalty technique? Uh, are you like a, a, a careful placement kind of guy or were you Penenka now and then or just hit it really hard and hope for the best that's the, my that's my yeah. approach graham how about you yeah the latter i was always actually pretty good at penalties because i my only my only focus was i'm going to leather this as 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 hard as i can and i'm going to lean over the ball to make sure I, I don't do like what bruno fernandez did <laughs> at the weekend and uh when you like i i stopped playing soccer after like the age of 14 so when you do that 14 year old goalkeepers like can't really do anything about it so i was pretty good at penalties i was the i was the who's really good at penalties in professional soccer ivan tony i've heard he's really good at penalties i was <laughs> okay. the ivan tony of my day uh 14 year old pickup soccer the ivan tony of my day we should get a plaque made of that for you um <laughs> how about you joe I, I imagine you've got like a little a uh, little stash of notes in your sock like a well-prepared goalkeeper and you're looking at where you should put it yeah, I've just turned the table. I'm doing the 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 kicker version of Jordan Pickford. No, I, I'm I'm much more placement over power because I am bad at soccer, and I feel like that is my best chance to actually get the ball in the back of the net. Uh, I I typically go to a bottom corner, either either side, um, and beyond that, I can't spill any more beans in case I ever have to score a penalty on either one of you. That's true. Yeah, you shouldn't give away the game. And on on that note, um, <laughs> we should talk about a team who also didn't find the net, Joe. Chelsea, the champions of Europe, did not find the net against Manchester City, the champions of England. 1-0 uh, to City, their game finishing uh, a statement win on Saturday from City. Uh, Pep Guardiola has now overseen more victories than any other manager in Man City's history. Bully for him. This one, Joe, felt like quite a one-sided game for a big game. We had two very drilled systems. It had the potential to be a little bit, you know, immovable object versus unstoppable force, blah, blah, blah. But it did feel kind of like City were on top of this one, Joe. Yeah, the first line in my notes for this game is City dominated. And I think I think they did, right? They come out and they play exactly how you expect a Pep Guardiola team to play. 
Their shape was shifting into different into different things when they had possession. Defensively, they pressed really, really well in this 4-4-2, 4-2-3-1. That also shifted a little bit, but with De Bruyne up top alongside a number nine in Phil Foden. And it was some interesting personnel in different spots. But we've really come to expect to see that from Pep at this point in his managerial career. So City executed a lot of their things really well. But kind of where I wanted to start this off, despite City being the team that came out with these three points, is Thomas Tuchel's system change, or or maybe shape change is a better way to put it, because a lot of the Mm. same principles were there, but he shifted his formation in this game. And a lot of times formation chat, I think, is overblown, and it might be a little bit in this game, too, from what I've seen on Twitter. But they did change into this 5-3-2, 3-5-2 shape and went away from that 3-4-3 shape that Tuchel's used primarily in his Chelsea career so far. There's not a ton of differences between them. And we've seen Tuchel go back and forth at times, even as recently as the Tottenham game last weekend. They they started in the 3-4-3, ended in the 3-5-2. And it worked really well for them in that Tottenham game. So maybe Tuchel thinks, okay, we're going to come into this one and I'm going to use that same shape, continue the trend from last week, and we're going to get another result here. That's really not how it played out. They ended up with Jorginho as the six, and then Kante and Kovacic as the eights, and Werner and Lukaku in front of them. And and I don't know if this was the default game plan or if it was a result of the shape, but essentially Chelsea just ended up defending in this mid to low 5-3-2 block for really long stretches of this game. And they are a good defensive team and they made life difficult for City. But man, I thought they were behind the ball way too much in this game. And that made it really challenging for them to actually create consistent attacking chances. And and to be honest, it didn't really create those chances until later on in the game once it had opened up a bit and they were really pushing for that equalizer. It was it was City's off the ball game that I that I personally found most impressive because as you say, Joe, a lot of what we saw from City on the ball is is what we tend to see from them. You know, players in maybe slightly unorthodox positions doing slightly unorthodox things, but all very well. But from the start, the high press from City was really really clear, and I thought it explained why Guardiola picked the front line that he did. Obviously, recently we've seen Ferran Torres play as kind of the number nine. We've had Mares in on the right side, but he went with Grealish, Foden, Jesus. All three of those players are very good at closing down opponents quickly, and it just denied Chelsea the chance to, to play their way through when they did have the ball, when they would have looked to attack. And Foden was the one charged with, with leading that high press. He did it really, really well in this game plan. De Bruyne was there to get on top of Jorginho and stop him doing what Jorginho tends to do in these games. And I think we're also starting to see or finally seeing the importance of Jesus to this City team. He's never going to be that number nine that everyone thought he was going to be when Aguero left the, left the club. But his work rate in a kind of slightly wider role as he's been playing this season is in, is incredible. And he's fast becoming one of Pep Guardiola's favourites this season. It's almost as if, to compare him to a, a previous Pep Guardiola player, Pedro, who I think we might be talking about later in this podcast, he maybe he maybe comes to mind. You know how he he uh, you know kind of stretches a pitch in a wide area, but also his work rate is really important on the defensive side of the ball. So that was the thing that really caught my eye. And the result of this was Lukaku's left completely isolated, and then Tuchel's response is to take off Kante and introduce Havertz who you would believe might do a better job of getting closer to Lukaku and offering that support. But the problem here was this that it just robbed Chelsea of another player in the centre of the centre of the pitch to uh, match up against City and it left both Lukaku and Havertz isolated up top. So that didn't really do anything to change the game. And at times it was as if City were playing with a central unit of six players, I guess. Maybe Jesus is, is an outlet, so maybe five players, but Foden, Grealish joining De Bruyne, Rodri and Bernardo and making that area of the pitch off the ball as compact and congested as possible. And I just thought this, this to me is a game plan that might 
work for City in the Champions League. I think that this this sort of game plan is the thing that might see them take the, the final step in Europe. You know, in, in Europe, they've maybe been guilty of trying to impose their own game a little bit too much on on opponents that maybe on the defensive side of the ball is where those incremental gains can be made. Joe, to come back to your observations about Chelsea's shape and the fact that they were maybe a bit negative sitting back quite a lot in this game, do you have any thoughts on why that was happening? Was it simply that the, the Man City press was just dominating, it was crushing them, which, you know, it was a very impressive press that they were playing? Or is it, you know, the lack of Mason Mount in the system? Is it that Tuchel just made the wrong decision here? What what caused them to be pinned back like this and to and to lack width despite having five across the middle? I think it is a lot of those different factors that you're just mentioning, Ryan. I don't know that it's any one specific thing. I do want to give, again, credit to how City approached this game because it's very easy for me to just fall into, ah, Tuchel got this wrong, this this didn't make sense. But City did make life extremely challenging for Chelsea. And so that's that's reason number one. Reason number two, though, is I think I think Tuchel thought that there's a lot of thinks and thoughts in there. So this is this is me just trying to reason this out. I think Tuchel approached this game as if we can make life hard for City, that's going to make life easier for us, right? The more numbers that City push forward, the more space there's going to be for us to counterattack into. And let's not forget, Romelu Lukaku and Timo Werner, that is, on paper, a fearsome counterattacking forward line, right? And you have Kovacic, who's great at progressing the ball on the dribble. You've got Kante, who's pretty good at that as well, as the two eights and then width from the fullbacks and Reese James to start and then Azpilicueta after Reese James comes off injured. And then you've got Marcus Alonso on the left. The pieces kind of make sense, and I can see them forming this counterattacking puzzle in my mind. The thing is, it just didn't work, right? For the number of reasons that I mentioned, that Grant's mentioned, that you mentioned, Ryan, it didn't work. And so it makes Thomas Tuchel look really bad in this game because the tactics he rolled out didn't work and the adjustments that he tried to put out there didn't really change the game either. But to be honest, I think there's a lot of validity in what he tried to do. Crowding midfield, trying to create turnovers with those three central midfielders and then counterattacking quickly and connecting with the front line. A lot of those things make sense to me. It just didn't play out in a way that that worked for Chelsea. Yeah, it certainly didn't. And Graham, to go to, to what City were doing here, this is kind of what I hoped the Champions League final would be, you know, in, in terms of certainly in terms of what City put on on the, on the table. Is it too simple to say, Graham, that this shows what happens when Pep doesn't tinker too much and doesn't overthink a game when he, you know, plays a defensive midfielder and has the right system in place to face the right position? Because he completely outclassed Chelsea here, quite the opposite of what happened in the Champions League final. Is it as simple to say as this is when Guardiola does what he's supposed to do? Yeah, I, I think that might be overly simplistic because I think if this doesn't work, people are talking about why Phil Foden is playing as the number nine and yeah. not, you know, Ferran. I know City don't have a, a world-class number nine, but they have Jesus who can play through there. Ferran Torres has, has scored a lot of goals as a centre-forward. So I think if it doesn't work, maybe the narrative is this is Guardiola overthinking it again. You know, he played Sterling in the Champions League final which that was painted as overthinking it, despite the fact that Sterling was playing in his like natural position. It was just that he was out, out of form and it was a bit of a surprise to see in there. So see him in there. So I, I just think, um, yeah, I think a lot of the, the difference was on the, on the defensive side of the ball, repeating myself a little bit there. But I, I also think the Premier League needed this result. I just had a sense that Chelsea might start to, if they'd won this game, they might start to stretch their legs and make a little bit of a mockery of how we all predicted this would be the tightest title race for years. Um, I just, even after this game, I still have this sense that they are the best team in the Premier League and there is that possibility that they could win it quite comfortably. But 
now there's just one point between the top five. And I think Brighton, if they win tonight, they can go top of the table. And there's two points between the top six. So it, it, it really has tightened up that, that top end of the Premier League. So as a neutral, I don't, I didn't have a horse in this race. I'm not a Chelsea or a City fan. I was quite pleased to see City win just because, as I say, it tightens everything up at the, at the top of the table. It does indeed. And it just, it makes you realise, you know, City go from not beating Southampton at home to this. How much things can change in seven days as well. It's quite stunning in this league, really. And it shows you the, the, the relative parity between the big six, if you will. Joe, I think one, one thing I noticed from this game was the strength on City's left flank. So you had Grealish over there. You had De Bruyne sort of operating vaguely on the left. And Cancelo, who had a, a, a really good game. He seemed to find loads of space. It was see, maybe uh, Rhys James coming off didn't help things, but Chelsea, as I mentioned, lack width, and it seemed that City were really exploiting that left flank. And I, I'm just, I'm, I suppose, once again, I'll reiterate that I'm really pleased in how Jack Grealish is being used. Yeah. I, once again, I thought he wouldn't be uh, a 90 minutes every single game kind of guy. Well, he wasn't here, but you know what I mean. Relied upon, and sure. he's he's fitting into the system so well, and this left flank looks so good with him there. I'm all aboard the Greedlish Express right now, Ryan. I think you're sitting up in the front, and maybe I'm a little bit behind you on this train. But, man, <laughs> it's fun to watch Jack Grealish play soccer, and I think it's especially fun to watch him play in this pep team where he can do all the things he's so good at within a detailed possession structure that actually makes City really fun to watch. It doesn't make them boring in most cases. It makes them electric in possession, which is not something that can be said for a lot of teams in the world right now. And so when Grealish gets on the ball – a lot of the time he's going to get it on his right foot and he's going to drive at this 45-degree diagonal angle inside, beat a defender or or lay the ball off to Cancelo on the overlap or lay the ball off to De Bruyne inside and then continue his run, get it back and do something magical. And And we're seeing that over and over again right now with City. And when you have those quality players around him, the players I just mentioned, Cancelo and De Bruyne and, and, and Phil Foden in the middle and a players coming up from behind, Silva and Rodri, they have so many passing options in those moments that they really are a hard team to stop. I mentioned it earlier, Chelsea are a good defensive team. And the goal in this game from City doesn't come from any intricate possession play or doesn't really come from a, a magical moment from Jack Grealish. It comes in the 53rd minute after a corner kick to Cancelo. Cancelo shoots his shot, doesn't make it through all the traffic in the box. And then Gabriel Jesus gets on the ball and scores a striker's goal. It's a beautiful goal. doesn't come from any you know magical moment or anything like that. But City are capable of those moments. And I like the moves they had in possession to switch the ball from side to side, get it to the weak side of Chelsea's midfield three, get it you know across either behind Kovacic or behind Conte, and then get it into Grealish or get it into Jesus or De Bruyne on the weak side in those pockets. I think on an individual level and a team-wide level, City are doing so many things in possession, or at least they did in this game. They're doing so many things in possession that make it really hard to uh, for opposing teams to defend against them. So let, let me ask you this then, Joe. Right now, who is the better team out of these two teams, Man City and Chelsea? I know it's not an easy question, and I know it probably turns up, uh, it depends who turns up on any given day, but if you had to pick someone now, would it be City? I think I'm still with Graham, to be honest here. This is a really hard one to answer, but if Chelsea are in that 3-4-3 shape and they do have... You know, one of the, okay, one of the last things I'll say in this game, and then I'll actually answer the question, Ryan, is in the 3-4-3 shape for Chelsea... You only have really two de facto central midfielders. Usually it's Conte and Jorginho, but sometimes it's Kovacic and Jorginho. You usually only have those two central midfielders, but then you have Mason Mount and Kai Havertz, whoever the two narrow wingers are. You have those players dropping in to almost create a box in midfield in possession. So there's a way to look at this Chelsea team that rolled out against City and say they actually played at a disadvantage in central midfield. They purposely handicapped themselves. And, and I don't think this is Tuchel's line of thought at all. But there is a way to think about this game where you say Chelsea had... 
one fewer central midfielders than normal, at least at times in possession. So I think if Chelsea are in that 3-4-3 shape and they try to go for it a little more, part of me still says that they are the better team. And maybe that doesn't make sense. Maybe I'm just buying into what we've seen in spurts so far this season. But I, I'm with Graham. I think Chelsea are still the team to beat this season. And, and maybe that doesn't make sense, but that's where I'm at right now. One final question for me, Graham, before on this game. Did you enjoy watching it? I mean, there were lots of <laughs> really, really good Premier League games this weekend. We're going to talk about a couple of them coming up shortly. But as as dominant as City were and as intriguing as this tactical battle was and these systems were to watch unfold, did you was it edge of the seat stuff for you? Uh, not really. Towards the end of the first half, I think I think I tweeted something to to the effect of like that when I was watching it. I'm thinking, wow, this is so good. This is so, two really, really well coached teams. This is, this is excellent soccer. And I'm a bit bored, <laughs> which was, uh, I think the second half was slightly livelier, certainly in terms of goal scoring opportunities. But yeah, it, it was, it, in terms of a spectacle, I'm more of a sort of vibes FC sort of guy. <laughs> uh, give me a flawed Manchester United performance, which results in seven goals every day over this even though I can appreciate the the tactical and the coaching brilliance of of this a game like this but from an entertainment point of view it it maybe wasn't edge of the seat stuff so was this an f1 race with no rain and no overtaking and everyone being very competent Graham yeah and the two and the two best teams at the head of the pack yeah (laughs) pretty much or the two best drivers sorry I should say Two best drivers, indeed. Well, these two drivers have got some big Champions League uh, games coming up this week. Uh, you, uh, Chelsea heading to Juventus. Man City facing little old PSG. So we've got some good Champions League action coming up for both these teams this coming week. And we'll be here later in the week to review it, of course. After this break, North London Derby time. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. 
That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Total Soccer Show, we are back. We are talking Premier League, specifically the North London Derby. Arsenal 3, Tottenham 1. Spurs have now lost three London derbies in a row to Palace, to Chelsea, now to Arsenal. This one probably hurts a little bit more for them. Graham, Arsenal looking pretty good in this one. And Thierry Henry also looking pretty good in his 90s JVC shirt in the crowd too. Yeah, he has been on classic football shirts for sure. Uh, I don't have that one on my OnlyFans, I have to say, but I approve a lot. It was a, it was a very strong look from Thierry Henry. Even, even the, the hat as well kind of completed the look. It was, it was good and interesting. He was, did anyone catch who he was sitting next to? I didn't go on. He was sitting next to Daniel Eck, the Spotify owner, who of course very publicly tried to buy Arsenal a few months ago. So, uh, that's interesting. Interesting. I do wonder how much Arsenal rolled out the red carpet for him when he turned up with the guy who wants to buy the club from the Cronkies. Interesting. He wasn't wearing a vintage shirt, so I didn't really notice him, Graham. I've <laughs> got to be honest. Um, <laughs> Arsenal, Graham. Are they good now? This it seems like they were, you know, pretty pretty quick on the ball. They were looked nice and aggressive. They were very positive. Had a really nice passing game. Was it the second goal where it was one of those classic Arsenal end to end goals? What's going on? Yeah. Are they good now? Am I supposed to think they're good now, Graham? Oh, I don't know, Ryan. I just don't know. I mean, we were pretty hard on Arsenal not so long ago, just a few weeks ago, like last month. But I feel like that was vindicated. Like that was justifiable at the time. And now they've been pretty good. You know, it's not just this game. They, well, they were, they weren't so good to get home to Nor- Norwich, but then they get a tough win away to Burnley, which I thought showed a lot of progress there. And then this was a very impressive performance. So yeah, now they're deserving of praise. And I guess that shows things can, can change very quickly. And I saw an Arsenal blogger dis- dis- uh, describe this match. I think it was, uh, Le Grove, if anyone follows, follows him on, on, on Twitter. He described this match as a referendum on Mikel Arteta. And I think Arteta himself actually felt that. You could see it in the way that he was celebrating on the touchline, very emphatically, the way the team celebrated afterwards. And in a sense, you could say it was slightly over the top. The pictures that were posted from the dressing room, it was as if Arsenal had kind of won a trophy rather than just uh, three games in a row for the first time this season. However, I do think that, that this all illustrates how important this match was for them. Of course, it could all come crashing down very quickly. Arsenal could fall just as quickly as they have risen over the last few weeks, but it feels like Arteta is finally producing some results with the players that he wants on the pitch. You know, that's an important thing to mention as injuries have cleared up, the transfer market is closed, they got some business done. And in terms of that first team on the pitch, it's it's looking pretty good. There's some balance there, there's some relationships there. So yeah, I liked what I saw from Arsenal in this game. 
And some youngsters doing very well, Graham, as well. Uh, Emil Smith-Rowe, who uh, was very good against AFC Wimbledon in the League Cup game, which, which led up to this one as well. I was getting Thomas Muller vibes from him. The Raumdeuter. He seemed to be really exploiting <laughs> and finding space very well. Is, is that fair to say? I can, yeah, I can see what you're saying there. He kind of drifts all over the place. He, he starts out on the left side in terms of his, his paper position, as I would call it, but he doesn't really stick to that position. And often it's Kieran Tierney who, pro- who provides, sorry, the, the width on that side. So yes, the, the awareness of space, I can see Muller qualities there. I think he's maybe slightly technically better on the ball than Thomas Muller. I don't get the, as Barney Roney uh, described Muller, I, I, I don't get the vibes of a, of a junior doctor on a fun run from Emil Smithrow. Um, but yes, I, I like, again, kind of repeat myself a little bit. I like what I see from him. And I also like the, the relationship he's forging with Martin Odegaard. And I think we're seeing why Arteta was so keen to get Odegaard back to the club. Not so long ago, about a year ago, 12 months ago, Arsenal were really struggling for creativity. And between Smithrow and Odegaard, they have that creative platform high up the pitch with Thomas Partey and Zaka kind of providing the platform in behind them. So, yeah, there's a balance to Arsenal. When they get, I, I do have doubts about their depth options when they need to rotate or when there's injuries or suspensions. But when they get their first team on the pitch, as they did against Spurs, there's a good team there. Graham, I love you talking about the platform there for Arsenal because I thought in this game they had so much fluidity that it almost made it hard for me to figure out what was going on at times. But they had some set pieces happening. Not not free kicks, not corner kicks. That's poor word choice for me. But they had some things that were set in how they approached the game in possession. They had at least three defenders back, sometimes four, depending on the positioning of the outside backs. But they had the back line and then they had a double pivot of Granit Xhaka and Thomas Partey in front of the back line. And then that gave Emil Smith-Rowe and Martin Odegaard freedom to move and to shift, exactly like you're saying. And when when Arsenal have those two guys moving and rotating and, and finding space in the attack, they're incredibly fun to watch. And I don't know, to, to kind of hit at you know, Ryan's question, are they good? I don't know if Arsenal is a good team right now. I'm still leaning towards probably not, at least not really contending for Champions League spots. But they can put together some wonderful sequences in possession. And they did that in this game. And I think a lot of the credit for that should go to Emil Smith-Rowe and Martin Odegaard. All right, then, Tottenham fans, you've braced yourself long enough. We're going to get to talking about your team now. Joe, what did you make of Tottenham in this game? It seemed like there's quite a lot going on here. They were constantly exposed at defence here. They, in the first half, they were maybe trying to press, but they didn't really have the midfield to back it up when it went wrong. And they, they, they sort of dropped back in the second half and um, were certainly sturdier in the second half. But it was all it all gone wrong by that point. The four three three Joe with Deli Ali and Ndombele in it didn't seem like it was optimal for covering ground. It wasn't very compact. Ugh. Was this just Nuno completely getting it wrong? I, I don't know, Ryan, because we just saw this exact same shape work really well for 45 minutes against Chelsea. And then they give up an early goal last weekend in the second half shifts, and there's some other things that happen there as well. And they lose 3-0. And they come out here and give up three goals very quickly as well. So the, the pressing was not good enough in this game. You mentioned that second goal already, Ryan. It's the Aubameyang goal in the 27th minute that puts Arsenal up 2-0. Arsenal just carve right through Tottenham's pressure. And that happened a few other times where Tottenham pressed in their 4-3-3 shape, which, again, thought worked really well against Chelsea, and they shut down a lot of angles. We didn't see it working out that way in this one. Then with the ball, Tottenham, I thought, were sloppy. 
I didn't think they had the consistent ability on the ball to move it through midfield, advance the ball to the final third, and create chances. And they didn't really create chances in the first half. The second half, it evened out a little bit. But they struggled in in a lot of phases of play in this game. And they had some nice moments in the second 45. The goal from Son is is a nice piece of play. I think it comes down, at least in large part, to a mistake from Arsenal's right side in them not being able to organize that pressure. But it is a nice goal when Brian Hill comes on and, and it's Hyungin Son getting that goal in the 79th minute. But so inconsistent from Tottenham, they couldn't consistently win the ball in midfield that then would allow them to get those extra sequences of possession. They struggled to contain Arsenal's possession play themselves. They struggled to create attacking chances. This was a tough one from Nuno's squad, and and they did not play well in the slightest. They certainly didn't. Graham, what happened here with Tottenham? They started the season so well. They looked so good against Manchester City at the start of the season. Top of the table in August. Nuno, manager of the month for the first month. How do you get from there to what we saw (laughs) here? And is it just that we're not in a transfer window anymore and Harry Kane has uh, sort of cooled off the jets a little bit? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think um, the way this season has panned out for Tottenham is maybe a lesson for all of us not to look too early at the Premier League table. I mean, a month ago, literally a month ago, Tottenham were at the top of the table and Arsenal were at the bottom of the table, 20th place, which had never happened before. And now it seems like Arsenal are heading in the right direction and Spurs are heading in the wrong direction. I, I came across a rather concerning statistic for Tottenham with regards to Nuno Espirito Santo. So in the last 365 days, his teams, Nuno's teams, so Wolves and this Tottenham team, have played 42 Premier League games and scored just 37 goals, which is not what you want, for, for especially for a club like Spurs, who in recent years under Pochettino very much prided themselves on their kind of dynamic attacking play. They have probably the best striker in European, out and out striker anyway in European football and I think this was a game that really thrust into focus the situation Spurs are in with Nuno they wanted a manager to wash away the lingering conservatism of the Mourinho reign but now they have a manager who very much sees the game in a similar way at least with Mourinho he had a winning track record you know he'd, he'd won the Premier League he'd won titles in lots of countries so you could maybe justify the compromise in Nuno and I'm very wary of straying into hot take territory, but in Nuno, Spurs now have a manager who was their fourth or fifth choice who's never finished higher than seventh in the Premier League. Not only this, but Nuno was on a downward trajectory at Wolves as for his last club, and Wolves fans weren't exactly distraught to see him leave. So I'm just not entirely sure whether he's the man to take Tottenham where they want to go. I don't know whether he's the man to put in the principles of the, of kind of... They've got a, a new director of football in Paratici Spurs who I assume will want to put in principles that kind of outlast managers, that kind of go beyond single managerial appointments. And I'm just not sure whether those principles can be put in place with Nuno as their manager. And I just think... It's not looking good for Nuno, both in terms of their performances on the pitch and also just a lot of the body language. It's more than just Kane. You know, Kane is obviously not playing well at the moment. He doesn't look that interested. He's not being helped by how isolated he is in this, in this, uh, in this system. But after this game, you had Hugo Lloris, who's the club captain, come out and he was, he's very scathing of the way that, that Spurs played. But Lucas Moira actually dis- dissected the game plan in, in a public setting. He said that they gave Arsenal too much space. They didn't, uh, Spurs didn't try to have the ball. He essentially disagreed that Spurs weren't trying to build moves through passing, through midfield. A direct quote from him was, so many long balls. That doesn't sound like a player who agrees with the current coaching of this team. 
Now, that doesn't sound like a manager who's necessarily in charge of the dressing room, Graham. Let, let me put it this way to you, Graham. Uh, next two Premier League games are Aston Villa and at Newcastle. If uh, if they don't get any points from those two, how much trouble is Nuno in at this very early stage? Yeah, I think he would be in trouble. Spurs and, and Daniel Levy have shown that they are willing to make a, a pretty hasty change. You know, obviously Pochettino was sacked. I think people would have given him longer before he was sacked. So Levy's shown that he's willing to do that. Mourinho was sacked, what, five days before a, a cup final? Um, so, and I, I have to say those two decisions haven't worked out for Levy, but what I'm saying is he doesn't tend to wait very long. He does pull the trigger quite quickly. And so, as you say, if they don't, if those results don't go well and, and, and if, if they don't play well as well, I think the way they're playing is almost as concerning. You know, teams can go through bad uh, patches in terms of results, but Spurs are offering next to nothing as an attacking outfit and they don't look too solid at the back either. I mean, why is Christian Romero on the bench why is Emerson Royale both two players who were big summer signings who were brought in to kind of change that defence why are they not starting games like this and you have Damson Sanchez and Eric Dyer both of whom were deemed not good enough last season and they've shown nothing this season okay that's a bit harsh on Dyer he had a couple good games but not enough this season to suggest that they should be in the team ahead of someone like Christian Romero who was the best defender in Serie A last season and has cost Spurs a lot of money I, I just don't get a lot of the decisions that not just Nuno is making, but Spurs are a club are making. And I, I'm not sure they'll wait too long to try and correct course, particularly if there's a better option out there. Joe, let's talk about Harry Kane specifically as well. His giveaway led to the third goal. He tried to track back, but sort of missed the tackle in, in doing so. <laughs> he had a chance where he was also kind of one-on-one in just after the hour mark and, and, and put it wide as well. On NBC, Joe, they said he's mentally not dialed in. They said he was in a rut. They said he checked out. What's your thoughts on the way he's playing right now? And is it simply that he didn't get his move and he's sort of, you know, uh, his productivity has dropped because of that? There's no way to know what the answer to that particular question is, Ryan, as, as to if, if it's because he didn't get that move to City, unless we've got Harry Kane's brother on the line. And even then, I'm still not sure I believe him. We don't know, right? We don't know what's going on <laughs> here with Harry Kane from a personal standpoint. We don't know if he's in a rut. We don't know any of that stuff. And I think speculating on that is not especially useful. What we can talk about, though, is how he wasn't impactful in this game. And I guess he was impactful if you're Arsenal, right? The second goal or the, the, the Kane slipping goal and then him sliding in the box that you just described Ryan it's kind of funny to be honest it was it was funny to watch I enjoyed that little sequence I am I think I am this podcast Harry Kane defender because I think if I'm Tottenham I'm looking at the structural problems around Harry Kane and my inability to create consistent chances more so that or, or I'm looking at the defensive struggles that give up three goals I'm looking at those things more than I'm looking at Harry Kane and yes Harry Kane was at fault for one of those goals so there is blame to be portioned off to Harry Kane here but I think Harry Kane is a brilliant number nine, and I think him and Son and even Lucas Moura form a pretty dangerous attacking trio. Tottenham just had breakdowns in areas that didn't allow them to create those consistent chances. I'm 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 working to fix those things much before I'm really looking to Harry Kane or even moving Harry Kane to the bench. If I'm new now, now I recognize that I might be alone in that particular view, viewpoint, at least among the three of us. But I think Harry Kane brings a lot of value to this team, and though he may be in a rut right now, Changing him out of the lineup from at least in a long term way, I think is is an overreaction. 
the other thing to mention, some context, is that I'm, I think I'm right in saying that Harry Kane has a track record of, of starting seasons slowly. I haven't done the research on this, so I'm, it's off the top of my head a little bit. But was there not a record he doesn't score in August? Last season was, yeah. or the season before, was the first time he'd scored in August in the Premier League or something like that. So that when you factor that in, it's maybe not that unusual that he's started quite slowly because that's something he tends to do even when the system is built around him. Yep, that's fair enough. It's English striker syndrome. Wayne Rooney used to have the same thing, I believe, Graham. So we can uh, maybe give uh, some dispensation for that. But uh, I guess we're learning. We have a Harry Kane defender on this pod. We have a Timo Werner defender in Graham Rutherford. And after this break, we have a game with very little defending because we're going to talk about Brentford Liverpool just after this. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, who would like to remind you when you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. You don't want to end up with Ryan, Graham and Joe. Just kidding. Just kidding. Very much just kidding. Because I was very fortunate to have the three of them all join the show. And I had existing relationships with all three of them that allowed me to know that they could handle the the the, uh, the amount of work that would be required, that they could be diligent in their tasks and be very effective on mic. And they, all three of them are. But again, that's because you have the existing relationship. If you don't feel like you have that with potential hires, then LinkedIn is going to make it very, very easy, and they're going to make it feel like you're connected to that person. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because it gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. But when you are setting the requirements and making it very specific as to what you're looking for, you can very quickly narrow it down to find the right candidate for that position. Hiring is easy when you have that many candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring, and you can too. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash TSS. That's linkedin.com slash TSS to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Thank you very much to LinkedIn for sponsoring today's episode. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Total Soccer Show, we have returned. We're going Premier League heavy this weekend review, and we're going to take ourselves to West London, to Brentford, who draw, who drew, I should say, 3-3 with Liverpool. Graham, this one described as an instant classic with Liverpool in their yellow submarine shirts. Brentford took the lead here in open play as well. We had Curtis Jones scoring a rocket. Lots of very entertaining stuff. Graham, was it as wonderful for you <laughs> as it was for me? Oh, yeah, I thought this was game of the weekend, which is why we are talking about it when we've already spoken about two Premier League games. We felt like we couldn't leave this one out. Everything about it was good. You know, Brentford more than contributed. They are a really bold team who do a lot of interesting things. We'll probably speak about that 
uh, a little bit more here. And then obviously Liverpool um, have always been a bold team who do interesting things. Everything from the the stadium, I love that. I, I mean, I've not visited in person, but on TV, the the Brentford Stadium looks like a a fantastic venue for football. The only thing I wasn't so keen on was that Liverpool uh, away shirt, that yellow shirt. It kind of is a cross between something you would expect your server at Five Guys or McDonald's to be wearing. <laughs> it's not my favourite. I mean. I like Five Guys, and I kind of like that shirt. Maybe that's why, Graham. Hmm, Maybe, yeah. I mean, I like Five Guys as well. I'm just not sure it's the best look for a Premier League football team. But okay, I get it. If it's an if it's an evocative of burgers and fries, then sure. Well, if that's if that's not, not a good look for them, Graham, I'd also suggest that conceding three goals at Brentford is not a good look for them either. Um, Liverpool looking very exciting here, and the, the opening 15 minutes of this game were brilliant. They were just end to end, and the rest of the game was excellent as well. But it was a blistering opening here, and and Joe Joe Liverpool pressing really well and going forward and doing all Liverpool things. But what caused them to concede three goals here? Was it a lack of? I don't, I don't know if you can call it a lack of midfield strength, but you know we have Firmino coming in to play in midfield at one point here. What what happened for Liverpool? A lot of it, for me, comes down to individual defensive errors, right? The first goal that Ethan Pinnock scores off of that set piece, Liverpool just don't clear the box, right? They don't clear the ball out of the box, excuse me. They, the ball's rolling across, and Ivan Tony gets a little touch to it, and Pinnock scores towards the back post, but Liverpool cannot clear the danger. It's poor set piece defending from Liverpool. And in the third goal as well, uh, it comes in the 82nd minute for Brentford to get the equalizer, and Liverpool just can't clear the ball out of the box after it's been across from the right wing that then's cleaned up towards the back post. So there are these individual defensive mistakes that Jurgen Klopp's going to be watching back in the film room and thinking, man, this could have been three points and we might not have even had to have sweat a whole lot to get this result. So there, there's those sorts of issues for Liverpool. There were some issues as well in midfield. I think winning the ball at times, Brentford brought a lot of muscle and, and really fought for a lot of those 50-50 balls in midfield. So there are problems there and some problems in terms of their ability to progress the ball. And I really liked what Brent, Brentford were doing with their pressure. So that there were other problems for Liverpool, but far and away for me, the biggest issue was just those small individual defensive moments where you either clear the ball or you don't. And too often in this game, Liverpool just didn't. Well, it was maybe it was Virgil van Dijk who was looking a bit um, less reassured than usual, Joe. I think he gave up uh, a bit of space for uh, for even Tony once or twice, yep. certainly for a header early on, I noticed. And maybe the Matip-Van Dijk partnership was unsettled here, but maybe because of the pressure that Brentford were giving them, the, the lack of respect that Brentford were giving them in some ways. In, 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 I mean that they didn't have any fear of Liverpool yeah. here. They, they were very persistent and, and very high quality going forward. Yeah, it made for a fantastic game. The best moment in this game, and I hope you guys caught it. It's it's not on the field. It's between Jurgen Klopp and Thomas Frank on the sidelines. Yes. Did you guys see this? 93rd minute, yeah. and they just exchanged this beautiful, memeable moment, jiffable moment, giveable moment, whatever you want to call it. It's after Firmino nearly scores a game winner in the 93rd minute to make it 4-3, and he doesn't score. It's saved, I believe. And Klopp just smiles and Frank is shocked. And it's an incredible moment between two really charismatic, fun coaches. And I think that also does apply to what we saw on the field. We saw Liverpool-esque things from Liverpool. And we saw some really aggressive Brentford, that we can now call Brentford-esque things from Brentford and Thomas Frank. The way that they pressed out of that 5-3-2, 3-5-2 shape. They closed down the ball. They stepped forward aggressively. They weren't always way up the field trying to press and, and do that, but they would even press up out of a mid or low block in that 5-3-2 five, five, shape. So they did so many really 
wonderful things defensively, closing down the ball, winning it, playing direct out from the back, but also they have the quality, and this is what they did, I think, more so in the championship last season. They have the quality to get on the ball and play through pressure as well, and we saw that in this game. A phenomenal performance from them in a really entertaining game from the sidelines to the on-field action. Graham, um, as the Total Soccer shows uh, Ivan Tony champion here, um, he had a very good game, did he not? And was it just me, Graham, or were Brentford kind of targeting Trent a little bit on that left uh, or his right on Brentford's left channel? Uh, a lot of action going down there and maybe getting the better of him occasionally. Yeah, I think they did target Alexander-Arnold. And as the game went on, I think they actually had to go at Andy Robertson as well. I thought Andy Robertson had one of the, the kind of poorer games I've seen him have for Liverpool. He actually hasn't had a great start to the season. And I think maybe Costas uh, Simicas might come back into that first team just to take Robertson out for maybe a couple game, uh, games. I would I'd maybe predict that. But Ivan Tony, I, I love Ivan Tony. I think he is... I, th- I think I said in the last week's pod that Chris Fryer had maybe gone slightly over the top by saying it was the the, the best um, last week's Tony performance was the best performance he'd seen from a centre forward. But I I kind of every, with every game I see of Tony in the Premier League, I kind of get where Ayer is coming from in that he does everything. He's a finisher. He's a facilitator. He's a front man who can hold up the ball. He can spin in behind. He's good in the air. He's good on the ground. He helps out defensively. And there was an interesting moment talking. Joe, you were mentioning uh, Frank and Klopp in discussion. Uh, after the match there was another interesting moment where Klopp and Ivan Tony were kind of talking to each other and it just got me thinking there's all this there's all this talk of maybe Liverpool would move for a more orthodox center forward as as an option and I I just think Tony would actually do really well for Liverpool I think he has the technical ability to fit into that system but also offer something a little bit differently Although maybe we shouldn't read too much into these full-time discussions because I'm still waiting for Guardiola to sign Nathan Redmond. (laughs) Gents, I wonder if there's something I kind of observed in this game in that Brentford kept trying to catch out Liverpool's high line by, on set pieces and then various other points, keeping a man or two miles offside and letting play catch up with them. And then that in turn stretched Liverpool at the back. The first and second goal seemed to follow that pattern where I think which one was the set piece? Was that the first yes, goal or the yeah. second goal? I, yeah, so that and that one, there was a couple of players miles off and then they let the play catch up and it was almost as if, I don't know, the centre-backs are looking over their shoulder a bit and got a bit stretched by that. Whether it was deliberate or not, it happened a few times, Joe. I'd be unsettled by that as a centre-back and those players are much more equipped to deal with those situations than I am, certainly. I don't need to say that. But I, I think... I think there is something to that pattern, Ryan, or at least to the intricacies of Brentford set pieces. They're one of the most analytically minded and analytically guided teams in the world, right? That has to do with their ownership, which you talked about in our Premier League previews, Ryan, if I remember correctly. And it comes down, as far as I can tell, to all these different parts of their organization. And we certainly see that on the field. I talked about set pieces. I think at some point in one of the shows last week, maybe it was listener questions, we talked about set pieces and how a lot of teams are trying to take more and better advantage of them because it can be this marginal gain for a team compared to the opposition. And we saw that in this one from Brentford with some creative set piece designs. And a lot of it stems, again, from individual issues that Liverpool had defending those set pieces. But still, you want to be putting players in positions to have to make those challenging calls as a defensive team. And so I think I think Brentford did a brilliant job of that. And a lot of that stems from how they choose to approach set pieces in a more creative way relative to a lot of the rest of the world. Indeed. Brentford ninth in the Premier League uh, after this round of games. Uh, Graham, are they going to do okay? They're going to stay up this year? 
Oh yeah, they're definitely going to stay up. I think they, they've got a pretty good chance of even finishing in the, the top half. You know, obviously there's precedent for that with Sheffield United two seasons ago, Leeds United last season, I think Brentford this season are, are a really solid team. As, as Joe mentions, they are driven by data, which gives them kind of a, an advantage over a lot of their rivals. One of the things that, that strikes me is how they very rarely make a bad signing. So when they spend money, you, you see it. On, on the pitch, you know, Vitaly uh, Janelt, who was, it was very impressive again, again in this game. And perhaps most notably, Hansi Flick was at the Brentford Community Stadium to watch this one. So maybe we might be seeing Janelt in the, in the Germany squad soon, but he cost just £250,000. Christopher Ayer, who cost a bit more than that, but he's already looking a bit of a bargain at, at £13 million. He's slotted straight into this team. So yeah, I like a, 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 what I see from Brentford. Obviously that, second season syndrome tends to be quite troublesome as Leeds are actually discovering this season but I, I I just think Brentford do so many things well and as I say they sign really well that maybe the second season syndrome won't hit them but maybe that's looking a little bit too far ahead yeah definitely nice to be a Brentford fan right now not so much a Norwich fan you're probably wishing you were back to in the championship you know winning games and having a bit more fun yeah someone week. save Billy Gilmore please <laughs> it's in our national interest <laughs> All right, that was a very, very entertaining game. Let's turn our attention to the continent, gentlemen. Serie A, Milan had a 2-1 win over Spezia. That put them top on Saturday. Uh, a goal from Daniel Maldini yeah. in his first start, Graham, in the third Maldini generation to play for the club. I, I can't wait for his son and his son and his son <laughs> to play for that Milan one day. Yeah, it's a bit like if you go to Eton in the UK, you're going to be British Prime Minister. If you're a Maldini, you're going to play for AC Milan. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, elsewhere, Juventus got a 3-2 win over Sampdoria. Paolo Dibbler scored a great goal, but unfortunately left the field in tears with an injury. He's going to miss that aforementioned uh, Champions League clash with Chelsea. But the Italian game we shall uh, focus our attentions on. Lazio 3, Roma 2. A goal-packed Derby della Capitale here, uh, Joe. This one, Sari versus is Mourinho, probably the highest calibre of managers we've seen in this derby for a while. Um, Jose Mourinho's second loss in a row and his second loss after a 100% start with Roma as well. Joe, it seemed that Lazio very much played the Man City over Chelsea role here. They very much outplayed Roma in this one. Yep, I completely agree, Ryan. I don't think you could find... No, you probably could. I don't think you could find many managers that think about football as differently as Jose Mourinho and Maurizio Sarri do, right? Two very different ways of playing the game, two very different ways of going out and trying to win soccer games. And I think we saw that play out in this Rome Derby. You've got Roma in this 4-4-2, very Jose Mourinho-esque. They have some creativity with their front four, but they're not really trying to break you down with the ball. And, and that would have been a surprising move from Jose Mourinho. Contrasting that with Lazio, with Maurizio Sarri, who played a very Maurizio Sarri-esque game. 4-3-3 shape, lots of rotations off the ball, tons of these little intricate bits of combination play where there's three players close to the ball and they're just playing a little, little pre-match rondo in the game. And they, they play the ball around a Roma defender, they play the ball around a pressing Roma attacker, and they break through and they keep building. Or maybe it's a diamond where four players have suddenly formed this quadrilateral, and they're passing the ball around quickly and moving it and advancing play. It's beautiful to watch from Lazio, and they were dominant in large stretches of this game. Not for the entire game, but certainly for the first 20 minutes, they were dominant, and that allowed them to get on the board. So they come out and they score a quick goal in the 10th minute. It's from Milinkovic-Savic, a beautiful bit of possession play and a great run into the box from Milinkovic-Savic, who scores that headed finish in the 10th minute. And then nine minutes later, it's Pedro on the counter. So after 20 minutes in this game, it's 2-0 
And Jose Mourinho's team at that point is in a really tough spot because they don't have a lot of ability to break someone down in possession. And Lazio at that point didn't have a lot of motivation to go and stretch the game. So it did end up getting a bit stretched and it got a bit chaotic. But at the end of the day, a strong performance from Lazio in this 3-2 win, I thought. Joe, can I ask you a question about the the style of of Lazio? Do you think Mourinho and Roma were slightly surprised at how willing Lazio were to kind of hit out on the counter? Because maybe I have a maybe I have a, an inaccurate grasp of what Sarri ball is. Obviously, it's defined uh, mostly by kind of intricate possession play in the center of the pitch. But two of the goals that they score are almost kind of Mourinho esque yeah. goals where they hit out, as I say, quickly on the counter. So, do you think that was something that caught Roma by surprise? Maybe I, I think Graham. If we if we had Maurizio Sarri on the pod and Ryan could act as our Italian translator, are you at that level yet, Ryan? I'm just going to pretend you are. And, and Ryan uh, could translate. Non parlo italiano. Mi dispiace, Joe. Perfect. All right, that sounds good to me. <laughs> if we had Sarri on the pod, Graham, I think I think the way he would describe his style was probably a little differently than how I described it in the opening in my opening thoughts on this game. I think he would talk about how the goal of his style is to exploit space in behind. If you think about the the height of Sarri's Napoli team when they were doing those incredible bits of build up, right? They would come after drawing the opposition forward. They would almost force the the other team to come and step into Napoli's defensive third, the opposing team's attacking third. And then they would combine, beat them with those triangles or those diamonds on the ball, those rondos, and play in behind. And, And the key there is playing in behind. That's where the space is. That, in my mind, is always the space that Sarri's wanted to target. Because if you get in behind, you're running in on goal with little to no resistance. So in this game for Lazio, the opportunities presented themselves to do that when they had possession and they could draw Roma forward and combine and beat them in possession. But those opportunities come the easiest and and those moments are the simplest when the other team's already forward. They've done your job for you at that point. So maybe Jose Mourinho and Roma were a little bit surprised by the fact that Lazio could hit them so aggressively on the counter. But I think that's always been sort of an underrated part of Maurizio Sarri's teams and really any high-level possession team is the ability to exploit space in behind on the break. And Lazio did that very well. Graham, something that struck me in this game, in Lazio's game specifically, was Chiro Immobile and the role he played here. He missed a few opportunities in front of goal, hit the side netting a few times and got the crowd very excited by that. But, you know, gets two assists, set up Anderson for the third goal, was involved in Mm -hmm. all three, actually. Um, Is Graham, is Chiro Immobile like an upgraded version of Timo Werner? Is he what Chelsea fans thought Timo Werner was going to be? In that, you know, doesn't always hit the net straight away I'm, I'm maybe I'm not making the right point here but do you know what I'm saying like he, he's yeah. almost like an upgraded Werner in the in his contributions to goal um and maybe you know the way fine space and not always getting it in the back of the net yeah I, I think I think he immobile is what Chelsea want Werner to be now I, I think to be honest when they signed Werner they thought Werner was just going to be a 20 plus goal a season striker I think there was a misunderstanding and I probably was quite guilty of that myself there was a misunderstanding of the kind of player he was so I would say now yeah Werner should look at immobile and and look at his contribution as you say he doesn't score in this game he misses a couple of opportunities but still notches two assists and is still crucial to the way that Lazio play out on the counter-attack, on counter-attack, particularly for the second goal where he kind of conducts that whole counter-attack on his own, draws 
two or three Roma defenders over to him, which then creates the space for, for Pedro to then finish from the edge of the box. The, the finish from Pedro, was that not very reminiscent of his goal in the 2011 Champions League final? How he kind of just guides it into the bottom right-hand corner after all the defenders have kind of been drawn away from him. The pass comes his way. I think it was maybe Villa that passed the, or Iniesta that passed the ball out to him. Anyway, um, I thought that front two of Pedro and Immobile were, were very effective. And even if Felipe Anderson as well, his, his cross, the, the goal that Joe was mentioning, was just I loved that that ball because the camera was right behind it. You could see what was unfolding with uh, Milinkovic Savic getting there before uh, Patricio, and I'm really pleased to see Felipe Anderson doing well for Lazio again after a pretty underwhelming time at West Ham. There's a really good player in there, in there, and he was excellent in his first spell at Lazio. So I am I am pleased to see him do well again. And Ryan, I've got a question for you, given that you are. Our local correspondent for this game now. Um, what was the, the? I'm always very interested in derbies. It's my like kind of bucket list thing is to tick off derbies around the world. I haven't done the Rome derby yet. So, given you're in the city, what what was kind of the feeling in the city on the day of the game? Is it quite tense, or does Rome just have so much going on that you wouldn't really be able to tell if you didn't know it was happening? Disappointingly, Graham, I'd say it was more towards the latter category. Um, I actually, I, I wasn't able to get a ticket for this game, but I went into Central Rome to sort of check out and see what the vibe was um, there. I think on the train and in Central Rome, I went to like, you know, the very centre, like Spanish Steps and around that court sort of area into the Borghese and the, the park. And I maybe saw two Roma shirts and one Lazio shirt the whole time I was there in the few hours before kickoff. And I think it's because it's, a relatively big city, Graham. And if you went to um, Buckingham Palace on the day of a Chelsea game, you might not see a load of Chelsea shirts. It's probably more like that. I wasn't near the stadium. But certainly it's something that's been talked about all week. It's something that's very exciting for for people around here because there's only two teams that people would support um, in these parts. But yeah, I I was hoping for to get like a a train pack full of fans and to have a bit of, you know, atmosphere in the centre of the city. But unfortunately, I didn't see that. But uh, as I say, I wasn't near the Stadio Olimpico or the Foro Italico or anywhere near that area. So um, next time, next time when I get a ticket for one of these things, I shall... Yeah, you'll need need to get a ticket to go to one. I've never been to the Stadio Olimpico, but around it looks so kind of picturesque and with the hill above it, with the the trees and a lot of kind of stats choose around it I, I, I don't know if you've been but it looks it looks fantastic well it's a really really stunning area well a city stunning as well but if they, they just outside the Stadio Limco you've got the Foro Italico where they do the Italian Open as well and it's um, oh, yeah. that's all, it's a clay so it looks really beautiful and it's got all those statues that on that part of it and also the statues that surround it statues everywhere in Rome by the way like busts <laughs> and just random headless statues absolutely everywhere they love them here most of them fascist Graham but that's a conversation oh. for another day or not most of them quite Quite a lot of them, I should say. Um, I've gone off track. What was I going to talk about? Rome. That's right. Roma specifically, um, Joe. Uh, my two observations from uh, Roma's side of things is that uh, Veratu, um, uh, his corners are hit like shots. They go at like 200 miles an hour. I was enjoying that very much. And uh, Zaniolo for the penalty win. That penalty win, Joe, went through. presumably went through review. He sort of um, <laughs> swung at the ball and missed it with zero contact was my takeaway. Okay, so I'm not crazy. That's that. Well, I might be, but at least not about this particular thing. I was baffled by that penalty decision. I don't know exactly what, what went on there behind the scenes. It looked very strange to me and like there was little to no contact as well. But I do want to say, I, I, I generally agree with your thoughts on Roma, that Ryan. My, my overarching thought about them in this game was I really liked the dynamics of the front four. 
with Tammy Abraham as the nine. This is in a four-two-three-one kind of shape. So you've got a nine, a ten, and two narrow wingers for the most part. You've got Tammy Abraham as the nine. You've got Mikatarian as the the ten underneath him floating. You've got El Shirawe on the left, and then you've got Zaniolo on the right. I thought they worked together very well, and they provided the danger that Roma needed because there's not this stable platform behind them. Abraham is dynamic with his movements off the ball, and he's also able to get on the ball and drive down into the half spaces or into those outer corridors of the box. Mkhitaryan, we know how good he can be at times. Same with the two wingers as well. I thought they were bright, a little inconsistent at times, especially with Zaniolo on that right side. But he was getting into the box and drawing phantom penalties, and you've got to give him credit for that. There was a lot to like about this Roma front four, and I think if they, if, uh, this is maybe an obvious thing to say, if they are a little cleaner defensively, Defensively earlier on in this game and take care of the ball just a bit better and don't leave themselves so exposed. This could have gone a different way because Roma does have the attacking talent to play with any team in Serie A. Yeah, Joe, I, I totally agree. And before this match, there was a lot of talk about Lorenzo Pellegrini, who was missing through suspension. And I think a lot of people expected him to be a big miss. He's got three goals and one assist in five Serie A games this season. But I don't think Roma lost this game on the attacking side. You know, it was the defensive side that that lost the game for them. And El Sharaway did a a pretty good job of uh, deputising on that left side. Or rather, Pellegrini would have been the number 10, Mkhitaryan on the left side. But yeah, there wasn't much of a drop-off there, really. I um, One of my observations is about the the defence as well. Um, Cars drop. Um, Not quite Alessandro Florenzi. Why is he at Milan and not here? I I don't quite (laughs) understand why. (laughs) Any idea, Graham? Um, I would I would suggest it's a Mourinho thing, but he was on loan last season at PSG as well. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Maybe just someone in the Roma executive doesn't like Florenzi. I don't. I don't know. He's definitely a. I would say a better option at right back than than Karstop. Yeah, he's a very good player. I don't understand that, but um, yeah, a very entertaining um derby della capitale we had here with five goals. Um, well, why don't we uh, have a quick uh, look at some other leagues? Let's go to the Bundesliga. Uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach won. Um, Borussia Dortmund nil. The Marco Rosa derby, if you will. Uh, some Rosa revenge here for Gladbach. Uh, no Haaland for um, Dortmund maybe making the difference in this one. He took a knock-in training before this game. And no Marco Royce either, which may have been more of a difference maker, um, him being a, a, a massive creative outlet, certainly for Dortmund at the moment. And Dortmund went down to 10 men, uh, to who getting uh, two relatively silly yellows in this one. But a big news, the big news, um, Joe, uh, RB Leipzig getting a big W, 6-0 over her to Berlin. That's got to be good news for Jesse Marsh getting things back on track there. It's a big result for Leipzig, right? We've been talking about how the pressure is building and maybe he's not immediately at risk of being fired, but the results needed to start coming and a six-goal outing is a great way to get those results coming. It's a massive result for Leipzig. They're not you know, near the top of the table right now. They're in 10th in the Bundesliga. But that's the kind of result that you need after the poor start to the season. You're building maybe a little bit of confidence heading into a midweek Champions League game. This is exactly what Leipzig needed. And the fact that they get that result, I think, is huge for Jesse Marsh. Indeed it is. And we've uh, discovered that Wolfsburg are the Spurs of the Bundesliga, starting so strongly. <laughs> they've lost twice in a row now. They lost uh, at Hoffenheim 3-1 this week. Oh, another 3-1 as well, just like Spurs this weekend as well. Uh, Graham, did you watch any La Liga action this weekend? And if so, pray tell us. Yes, I did indeed. And it was uh, another interesting weekend in La Liga. It started off the early game on the Saturday, Alaves versus, versus Atletico Madrid. Alaves take an early lead. 
But at that point, Atleti probably aren't panicking too much because we've seen them mount a number of comebacks already this season from similar sort of situations, except in this, on this occasion, the comeback never, never came. And uh, Alaves pick up their first points of the season, a shock result there, Atleti losing ground in, in the title race. Saturday night was maybe the marquee match of the whole weekend. You had Real Madrid against uh, Villarreal. Villarreal haven't started the season that well, but they have a lot of quality, obviously. Unai Emery, a good coach as well. That one ends nil-nil, and Villarreal might have, might come away might have come away from the Bernabeu thinking they might have actually got all three points. And particularly the the first half, they were the the dominant side. I think this was a bit of a reality check for Real Madrid, who have been very good so far this season, particularly in the attacking third, the likes of Benzema, Asensio, Vinicius, even Hazard contributing so far this season, but they were they were held at arm's length by a very well-organised, very well-coached Villarreal team, and then on Sunday you had Barcelona against Levante, a, 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 a must-win match for Ronald Koeman's future, of course he is under intense pressure, they'd They'd gone three games without a win. They had lost to Bayern Munich in the Champions League, then back-to-back draws against Granada and uh, Cadiz in La Liga. But this was much more routine for them. Memphis getting the first goal, Luke de Jong getting the second goal. And then the headline from this match is Ansu Fati making his long-awaited return from injury. This kid just isn't normal. The hype and the expectation around him has grown and grown and grown and grown as he's been out injured, as Messi has left, as he's been handed the number 10 shirt as Messi's successor. He comes off the bench with 15 minutes to go and he scores this incredibly well-taken goal from the edge of the box. He celebrates in the stand with the club doctor that's helped him through the last 10 months or so, which was a nice moment. And all of a sudden, I know it's just one match, but all of a sudden the picture is looking a little bit better for Barcelona, particularly if if they can get Ansu fit and in form again. He kind of transforms that team a little bit. Wow, good to see Ansu Fati living up to the uh, 10 shirt as well. There was a risk that that could have backfired pretty badly, Graham. So I'm glad to see he's uh, he's doing okay wearing those digis. Uh, Joe, uh, MLS action. Uh, The Red Bulls won the New York Derby 1-0 on that baseball field in the Bronx. We had wins for both the conference leaders as well. Yeah, I've got three quick bullet points from MLS this weekend, and the Derby will be touched on a little bit later. First, I've got Seattle beating Sporting Kansas City. That's the biggest game of the weekend, the two best teams in the Western Conference. Seattle beat SKC 2-1 in Kansas City. Some really chaotic energy in this game, particularly for Seattle's second goal, but a great result for the Sounders that puts them on top of the Western Conference after a midweek loss to Lyon in the League's Cup Finals. So much in the League's Cup Final, excuse me, so much credit for what Seattle have built, right? Brian Schmetzer, Garth Lagerway, they're insane. They're good all the time at this point, and they don't get enough credit, even though I think a lot of folks heap credit on them continuously. They are just a phenomenal team. But maybe the bigger note than this particular win is that after the game, Brian Schmetzer, head coach, said that Jordan Morris, who's been out all season rehabbing from an ACL tear that he suffered while on loan with Swansea, Jordan Morris apparently is going to be back in training by the end of the week, which is phenomenal news for the Sounders because they're going to be out without Nico Ladero, their number 10, for at least a stretch of time as he's recovering from a knee surgery himself. So that is phenomenal news for Seattle. They're the rich get richer, I guess, to use that cliche. Bullet point number two, uh, the West was a little bit wild this week. San Jose beat LAFC 2-0. Austin beat the Galaxy last night, Sunday night 2-0. Minnesota beat Houston 2-0. Vancouver beat FC Dallas 1-0. But the craziest result in the West is 
Portland beating RSL 6-1. Yeah, 6-1, another six-goal result for someone across global soccer. RSL's head coaching situation is looking a bit more pressing after they uh, lost Freddie Juarez, who is now an assistant on Brian Schmetzer's staff in Seattle. Bullet point number three, chaos in the Eastern Conference. The Eastern Conference, guys, is insane. Ryan, you mentioned that New York Derby result, uh, the Red Bulls had been poor and maybe still are bad in the Eastern Conference, but they managed to get a win over NYCFC, which is a great result for them. Just three points separate third from eighth in the Eastern Conference right now. Three points, guys. That is nothing. The Eastern Conference is in absolute mayhem right now. Nine points separate third from 11th, so that's it's a bit of a wider, wider margin. But you can go down all the way to the 11th team in the Eastern Conference and still say that they have a reasonable chance to sneak into the playoffs. That 11th place team right now is the New York Red Bulls. NYCFC in third with 39 points. Really, the only two teams that are safe in the East is New England and Nashville. New York City will be safe. There's a couple other teams that are going to be fine as well. But things are wild in the Eastern Conference right now. Things are wild in MLS right now. The the stretch run and headed into the playoffs, that whole slew of games is going to be insane. Yeah, just looking at both conferences, Joe, it looks like there's so many teams that are still on for playoff uh, contention. And in the West as well, you've got uh, th- three teams below the playoffs within three points of it yeah. as well. There's, uh, there's plenty to play for. Yeah, there is plenty to play for. And it's. I think this is exactly what MLS wants, right, is some degree of parity and competitive parity that they can manufacture. And they're getting that. And there are there are only a few teams, at least in my view that have a realistic shot of winning silverware this season. The Revs have the supporter shield wrapped up at this point. They haven't clinched it, but they are going to win that trophy. And they are one of the few teams that I think has the quality to actually make a run through MLS Cup playoffs. That said, playoffs are designed to be wonky. So is it impossible that San Jose could sneak into the playoff field and then go on to win this whole thing? Yeah. Is it likely? No, but stranger things have happened. It's going to be wild, like I say. It's it's nice, Joe, in my opinion, that so many teams are in contention this season because obviously next year when Charlotte FC dominate, it's, <laughs> it's out of the question that anyone else can win. Then, um, you know, it's, it's nice they've got this season at least, don't you think? Yeah, it's kind of Charlotte to give everybody a year before they just come in and ruin the whole parody structure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was the intention. All right. Uh, on that note, Joe, thank you very much for your contributions on this weekend review. A pleasure as always, sir. You got it, Ryan. Thanks for conducting our orchestra. Oh, I do try. Graham Rudden, thank you so much for the soccer chat, the F1 chat, and just about all the chat we had today. (laughs) Thank you, Ryan. It's always fun. Listener, thank you very much. We'll be back very shortly. But for now, bye. Bye. 